0: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hey everyone, it's Alden, the producer of Shut Up Evan. This episode was recorded remotely during quarantine. You might notice some changes in audio quality throughout the episode, but the content is just as good. So stay home,
2: stay healthy, and enjoy the episode. I know what you're thinking. I need more Shut Up Evan. Well, you're in luck. Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash shut up Evan, to sign up and get exclusive extended interviews with each of the week's guests. This week, you will not want to miss Detox, where we have a lengthy conversation breaking down what we love and what we don't about the current season, season 12 of RuPaul's Drag Race. You don't want to miss it. On today's show, RuPaul's Drag Race season five finalist and All Stars 2 runner up, Detox. The drag queen and recording artist talks about growing up as an effeminate gay boy in North Carolina.
3: Made me very aware that I was different and that it was bad for people to look at me the way that I was which was being, you know, a soft, effeminate, artistic, creative person. Dating. You know, people are still very much like, I'll never date a drag queen, I'll never date a drag queen, but here we are, you know, probably the most popular people in the gay community right now, (laughs) which is, you know, you're welcome. A
2: stint-making gay porn.
3: I was a really slutty twink in those days, and I was like, I might as well make some money and get some new wigs. Reflecting on the legacy of Drag Race. I miss the drag aspect of Drag Race from the earlier seasons, where it was about the art and about... The punk rockness of drag. RuPaul as a cultural figure. As somebody who's supposed to be, you know, the leader in the forefront of this movement, then he has a responsibility to do things that he doesn't. And awkward sex with fans. I'm eating his ass, and the whole time he's like, what's rude like? What's... <laughs> 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 so I find that I had to take his butthole out of my mouth, and I said, he's black, he's black, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> shut up, Evan!
2: Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm fine, all things considered.
2: Yeah, I feel like now there's the the recognition that to be fine is uh, a relative term to the... Yeah. But anyway, one source of great distraction for many people within the LGBTQ plus community and beyond over the last couple of weeks has been Drag Race. And for many people, Drag Race has really been a significant demarcator of time. It's the one thing that sort of we can depend on right now. Uh And we have, you know, one of the show's most famous alumni on today. Uh, But I wanted to ask you, and, and also I should preface, we get into this subject in depth in this week's Patreon with our guests. But so Alden, what's your, how are you feeling about this season of Drag Race?
1: I'm enjoying it a lot. I think that everybody's so talented. Um, It's thrilling because other than, you know, one person in particular, it's like anybody going home, (laughs) anybody going home, like kind of sucks because everybody's really good in their own way. I felt like the show as seasons went on and on, I kind of thought like, have we just run out of excellent queens? with so many seasons. And I thought that Drag Race UK was really exciting cause it felt fresher and newer. Cause it was like, oh, here's a new batch in a new country of Queens. And like, we're getting talented Queens, all talented for different reasons. But then this season came out and it's like, oh wait, no, there's still some like excellent, excellent talent out there.
2: I agree with you. I think the Queens, the crop of Queens are very talented this season. I think that, I think I've been a little disenchanted by the fandom. And I don't even mean in in the typical way that like the fandom can be problematic in that they can be racist and they can uh, be just very vicious towards the queens and towards one another and death threats and all that. I'm not even speaking to that. I guess what I'm trying to say is Twitter, which is where I hear about most of this. It's like I'm following mostly I'm following a lot of gay men in their 20s and 30s mm-hmm. who have similar sensibilities and or interests to mine. And so I realized that like my, I tend to get large clumps of people that just all think the same thing and notice the, like the show will serve something on a platter and then everyone will just eat it up. And I don't know if it's because I'm just like a critical bitch or if I, my reverence towards the earlier seasons is such that I miss when there the show sort of stood on its own a bit more and wasn't so so much a part of like fan culture and, and like that's a strange thing to say cuz it's it's a lovely thing that the show has this fan base but I feel like the fandom makes it harder for me to love the show. Does that make any mm. sense?
1: Yes, 100% I mean, uh, I feel the same way about Star Wars, for example. It's a similar fandom where it just sort of like, every time a movie comes out, it's like, do you guys even like this show? Like, Mm. do you like this franchise anymore? Because you just seem to hate it more than anyone else. Um, I've I've always found a a similarity between those two fandoms, especially lately.
2: I also think there's like an overloving though, too. A lot of the girls on the current season, the way I see it, And this is whatever, but like, I see them as eight out of tens, but I see the rhetoric about them on the internet, 10 out of tens. And it's like, well, I I think part of that hyperbole, or at least why I'm excited
1: about it is that like, I feel like a little like starved for just a bunch of talented queens combined with the fact that we were getting Drag Race back to back to back to back, and then we finally had a pause when the world went crazy, and now it's just like, thank God you're actually
2: back in our life. Yeah, but I mean, I think if anything, I've really come to love the ecosystem of Drag Race podcasts. Hmm. In, In opposition to sort of Twitter, where I feel like everyone just sort of... You know, like, there's a thing right now, it's like, if you go on Twitter and just say, like, I would die for Heidi and Closet, that's gold for twitter right now like people love like standing for heidi is a thing that is popular that uh ecosystem uninteresting to me um but on the podcast and i want to shout out all right mary um, which is my favorite drag race podcast by far they really break open a lot of the nuance and also sort of explore the show through the lens of previous seasons and the precedent and mm-hmm. who the judges are and, and what's being critiqued and whether or not all of the elements of the show are sort of congealing to be the show that they as fans once loved and and I just really love that sort of commentary and sometimes I feel like it's like I like the I like listening to all right Mary talk about drag race more than I like drag race.
1: I think part of that though is because you like It's the difference between just a regular fan consuming the show versus you that can like actually critique and analyze the format of the show in ways that the average fan is not. Um, I think of myself as just a fan of the show. I consume it. I stand Heidi. But I think that (laughs) but for you, it's like you look at it differently. And I think that it sounds like you're also resonating with people who look at it similar to the way you do.
2: Yeah, also, like, I, for instance, Widow, Vondue, uh, one of the contestants mm-hmm. on the show, is not good reality television and is a good, great, or great drag queen. And I feel like the dissonance between those, I will always gravitate towards really good drag over really good reality TV. And I think that their really good ja- drag can precipitate good reality TV. Um mm-hmm as has often been the case before. But I feel like sometimes now, and we've had this for multiple seasons where you get really mediocre queens when it comes to what they're offering and also like a unique perspective that they're bringing in favor of being memeable or causing a stir within the fandom. And that's why I've always like, I'm always such a Dita Ritz fan because just she's not the one people are talking about. Yeah, and so therefore, it's like that's always what I'm gonna be wanting to talk about. Whereas, it's not that I don't love Heidi, but it's like everyone loves Heidi on the internet. That's like there's the the supply is high. I would rather <laughs> um, I would rather pick something else out that it's like, oh, let's revisit this queen who kind of got slept on because that that's the thing for me. It's like no one's sleeping on Heidi. No one is really sleeping on any of the queens this season. Maybe that's sort of. Where I'm leading leading this to in my head right now, which is like, besides the one queen who will not be mentioned, all of the girls that are left minus maybe Widow. I don't think Widow gets a lot of love on the social spheres, but it's like agreed, agreed. There are Crystal fans everywhere. People love Jackie. People love Jada. People love Heidi. People love Jan. It's like, and this is to your point earlier. There's there are crop of talented queens, but if everyone loves everyone, um, and really loudly. I'm always going to go for an underdog and I'm not really seeing a lot of underdog.
1: I think Heidi's the underdog though. And I think that's,
2: but I guess what I'm trying to say is it's like it. And if, okay. So let's go with that. Like let's, if she is the underdog, the fandom is so rallied around her that it's like, she's no, even though she is underdog, perhaps within the show, the fandom will make it so that she will have a very Vanjie trajectory, which is like, it doesn't yeah. matter how she does on the show at all, because everyone uniformly loves her. And while that's great, that's not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So I guess the point you're
1: making is you're a huge Aiden Zane fan.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, all this to say, I think we're both enjoying the season, and yes. we're glad that Drag Race exists. I feel this way about drag race through and through which is like even when i don't like it i would rather be watching it than 99.9 percent of the other entertainment out there and i love and i will always give credit to the fact that 145 lgbtq plus people have been featured being proud being loud doing yeah. incredible things and that cannot be erased. That part of it's not a competition. That's a competition that we won, and I love that part of the show.
1: Absolutely. And on that note, let's talk to one of those contestants, Detox.
2: She is a drag performer and recording artist who first came to prominence in the West Hollywood drag scene before appearing as a finalist on season 5 of RuPaul's Drag Race. 3 years later, in 2016, she returned to the show under its All Stars format, landing as first runner-up during that go-round. During the show, she famously performed a verse on RuPaul's Red You Road You. She has appeared in music videos, including Rihanna's Disturbia and SM, Kesha's Backstabber and Take It Off, Lady Gaga's Applause and Lizzo's Juice. As a member of the girl group DWV, she, along with fellow artists Willem and Vicky Vox, produced hits including Chow Down, a song and video which addresses the 2012 Chick-fil-A same-sex marriage controversy and the opening of a Chick-fil-A restaurant in Hollywood. That video has accrued over 9 million views on YouTube. Their follow-up, Boy is a Bottom, doubled that and then some with over 24 million views. She has appeared on the cover of New York Magazine and guest starred on Botched. That's how Roundabout, her career, has continued to be. She's an original, she's filthy, she's delightful, she's kooky as fuck, and that's why I love her. She is Detox. Detox, thank you so much for being here today.
3: Hi, thank you for that wild introduction. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like for you to, to hear all of your accomplishments read back? Um, it's, it's really bizarre and weird because I never really think about anything like that. And then I see, you know, articles or I hear something amazing like that from somebody who I admire and look up to. And I think that that's, it's just kind of wild and pinch inducing.
2: (laughs) Your like music video credentials alone are so important and then when you add everything else and it's just you know i i went back in preparation for this and re-watched some of the music videos oh lord and particularly you in rihanna's snm video um i just highly encourage anyone with a pulse to go and check that out <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into it i want to ask about your last name because i know that you are detox i cunt, but
3: uh, yeah yeah, I, I seldom see you use it or say it. I well, I never. I, I've never used it really. Is Oh, was just kind of something that um that happened when I moved to LA from Florida. Is like you know back in the time when MySpace was a thing, and you used to you can create your own MySpace you know URL. Basically, one of my favorite songs at the time and one of my favorite songs to perform was a song called "Replicant" from Dirty Sanchez, who was Jackie Beats um, music group. So my my. URL name for, on MySpace for the longest time was myspace.com slash detoxicant, just because I thought it was like a fun play and words like, you know, a detoxing agent and also uh, a nod to that song that I was like known to perform. And so when I first came to LA before I even moved there to visit and I was performing, um, I, I reached out to Jackie Beat and I was like, hey, I'm going to be in town. Do you know anywhere that would want to book me while I'm there? I might as well try to like test the waters before I move out there. And she said, yeah, come and do my show. And she announced me as Detoxicant and Katna kind of never stopped referring to me as that. So it kind of stuck for a minute, even though I'd always be like, no, 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 it's just Detox, it's just Detox.
2: So looking at your resume just now, there are so many incredible things that you've done throughout your career. Is there a particular moment for you that's your biggest pinch me
3: moment? Oh God, there's so many. You know what I mean? It's like I've been, I've, I've been very, very lucky, and I've had like this crazy trajectory of like, especially the like since RuPaul's Drag Race has happened, but even before then, I had so many. I was gonna
2: say you kind of your career predates Drag Race.
3: Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm, I was doing an interview the other day, and it kind of dawned on me that in the next couple of years will be my 20th anniversary, and I've been doing drag for you know more than half of my life now, um, which is wild to even think about because I'm still quite young. You yeah. Know? Um, well, I'll be, I'll be 35 this year, which to me is still young, but... Yeah, you're young. Yeah. <laughs> so that means that so you began your drag journey at 15. I started going like going out in drag and trying to like... Um, running around in drag when I was like 15, 16 years old. I didn't really start working that much until I was 17. So I was just like calling... 2003 was kind of like my first year of really starting to like get, put my name out there and and... You know, hustle to do drag. So, and I'm you like, were
2: in Florida at the time.
3: I was in Florida at the time. Yeah, I didn't move to LA until t- 2008. But yeah, I was born in Florida. My my, my parents were.
0: My dad was with
3: Lockheed Martin, um, a big military, you know, weapon developer, and so we moved around quite a bit when we were young. But we always kind of ended up back in Florida somehow for some reason. <laughs>
2: So what sort of compelled you in the beginning to experiment with drag? And and were you even, were you even considering it drag at the time or was it just sort of dressing up for fun?
3: Well, for me, it was just dressing up as fun. You know, um, my sister and I had a store, I got emancipated at 15. I moved in with my sister in Orlando and, um, she had just had her first child. She was, you know, just starting law school. Um, And we we owned a business called Echo Exchange. It was a consignment store, essentially. But we specialized in local designers and vintage clothing, which is like a passion of mine. So we would throw all these fashion shows and parties around town to try to get, you know, business in. And I would always make sure that I was a model in the shows. And one time we did a fetish fashion show at Taboo Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And it was my first time, like, you know, being on stage in drag. I was like 15 or 16 years old. Um, And that's when I met my first drag queen and kind of like fell into that circle and started you know sneaking out of the house at night and going to the gay bars and when i went to my first gay bar southern nights in orlando and i saw my first drag show there were like all these amazing club kids performing a lot of trans queens performing which is like when i fell in love with with trans women and they all took me under their wing and i was like oh my god this is what i want to do
2: (laughs) and do you remember that feeling that came over you the first time that you were on stage and have this audience of queer people in front of you going apeshit. I imagine that's like such
3: a unique feeling. I still get it. Yeah, I still get it. I mean, there's, I just love drag so much, and I love, I love the feeling of being with people who are like minded, and who have you know been through the same kind of situations, not necessarily the exact same, but like we've all come from a similar place and a similar background and have you know fought the fight. And I think it's a lot different now, obviously, because it's so much more accepted and you know, the community is so so much larger and a lot, you know, we have a larger voice. But, you know, for a young kid who shouldn't have been in the gay bars, who was going in there and felt welcomed and felt supported, um, it was a really awesome feeling.
2: So you mentioned at 15 years old becoming emancipated from your parents. What sort of relationship did you have with your parents
3: growing up? You know, we had, um, we're, we have a very tight family and we're so very, very close. I think it was just the whole, the moving a lot, at an early age, and then, you know, trying to understand my my queerness, um, and not really having a huge support with my family in that sense, other than my sister, made it difficult. You know, we at the time, my dad's, like, first midlife crisis, I would say, we were living in Arizona, and that was the place that we had grew up. My brother and I have a twin brother, and that was kind of the place that we knew the best, and he had a midlife crisis, decided to move us all to the small town of North Carolina, where he was from, and that was such a jarring experience for me as a young, you know, gay person. I had just started junior high school. I was in seventh grade. Um, And then to move from there, where we had a really core group of friends and family, to North Carolina, where we knew nobody, where it was the first time I experienced anybody being racist to other people. It was the first time I was called a faggot. It was the first time, you know, all these things happened. And I was like, it was very, it made me very aware that I was different and that it was bad for people to look at me the way that I was. Which was being, you know, a soft, effeminate, artistic, creative person, um, and I think that created a lot of tension with the family.
2: And do you feel like at that time, because you know, there was it was just such a different time in terms of the amount of representation that was out there mm-hmm. when you sort of were receiving that message of being called a faggot. Um, did you sort of internalize that as, okay, what I am is wrong?
3: Yeah. You know, and then I had like someone like my mom who, who found religion all of a sudden and was trying to get me to go to church. And like, you know, I was, it was quite obvious that I was a Nelly homosexual, you know, it's like, it's not something that you can't hide this. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely felt it. And of course, you know, everyone at school made me feel that way. My, my family made me feel that way. And it was something that I was ashamed of. You know, unfortunately, my sister was already out of the house. She is like seven years older than my brother and I. So she was already, you know, gone and doing her own thing. And she's always been my biggest supporter, you know, my wingman, essentially. And so I didn't really have her. And whenever I actually was able to move back in with her, she's the one who really encouraged me to explore that side of myself and to be fine with it and comfortable and, you know, introducing me to to other young gay people and introducing me to older gay people, that was really great because it was like people that I could look up to that could steer me in the right direction of what not to do as a young queer person. Not that I did any of that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you
2: remember like a time or even like a specific moment in which you realized that being gay was not only okay, but that it could actually be a good thing?
3: I mean, I think it was when I moved in with her, and she like I met so many people that were like me, that were doing well, that were living their life free and and happy, and and just not ashamed of you know their sexuality. I think that was a huge, huge part, and especially like meeting other young gay kids. She like she got me enrolled into this really young queer youth organization where we would meet every week and have tea and coffee and cookies and talk about what our gay experiences were like. And I had a lot of support from that, you know, and not, not many people have that opportunity. I don't think, especially coming from the South to have a supportive family member that will be like, no, this is what you are. You need to not, you know, not hide who you are.
2: Having, you know, 20 years since you were first emancipated from your parents, and I imagine an evolving relationship with them. What have you sort of learned about the curve of acceptance?
3: Well, I never thought that my father would come around the way that he did, which was really nice because it was, you know, there was always this, a lot of tension because I had a lot of resentment for him moving us, you know, to, to a place that was like North Carolina that kind of um, opened the door for all of that negativity in my life. And that was, to me, so life-changing and so detrimental to me being young. And he was, you know, he's an old man. He was an old man and was very set in his ways. And he comes from that generation where, you know, racism was very much alive and bigotry was very much alive. And the fact that he was able to, you know, open his mind and and be a lot more accepting. And it, it took him a while too. I don't. I think it took him, honestly, until I got on Drag Race to be like, oh, wow, this is like not a phase in my kid's life. He got to see a side of me that was, you know, that maybe I didn't let him in to see other than, you know, what he saw on television. I think the more that he saw that I was living a very proud life and doing really well and making a name for myself in a positive light, then he had no choice but to kind of get behind it and support me.
2: Do you remember, like, growing up who the LGBTQ plus celebrities were that were sort of on your radar?
3: No one. No <laughs> one. <laughs> We, I mean, we had we had like Will and Grace. It's, I watched Will and Grace religiously as a child, even though I wasn't allowed because it was queer. Like I got so much trouble for sneaking up and watching Will and Grace. And to me, I you know was young and an idiot, and I assumed that they were all just gay. Anyways, I didn't find out until a lot later that Will was not homosexual. <laughs> I felt very betrayed. Um, <laughs> Madonna has always been my icon, and she's always been a pioneer for. For our community, and I always um, admired that. And she was, you know, a a huge part of of me growing up.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know for so many people, particularly the Blonde Ambition Tour Mm -hmm. and that sort of era of Madonna, in which she became sort of the most outspoken and one of the and one of the most no, probably the most prominent celebrity to speak about the AIDS crisis that was happening at the time and how it was affecting not only our community, but a, a community that she counted herself among. How formative was Madonna in terms of not just like your creative self, but just in terms of who you are today? Because I feel like for some gay men, myself included in this, the Madonna of that time is holds a really strong place in our hearts.
3: Oh, she was everything to me. And I mean, a, a lot of that is a, a large part of my res- my sister too, because, you know, she's seven years older. She introduced me to Madonna. I grew up basically... Thinking Madonna was my mother, <laughs> I still I call her <laughs> I call her Mom Donna. Like to me, she's still my mother. Ray of light probably saved my life because it was right around the same time that I moved to North Carolina and then the album came out. And I was like, got me through a lot of shit. <laughs> and to, to this day, she's still that to me. Even though she's a little crazy now, but I kind of love it. It's like my crazy mom.
2: <laughs> totally,
3: she's you know she's been. Not just creatively has been a part of of who I am and um and the philosophy of Madonna has been a huge part of my life.
2: Yeah, I completely concur. Have you seen the movie um strike a pose? Yes. I feel like going back and sort of relearning that that history and, and seeing the impact that she had on those dancers' lives, both positive and negative, right. it really fleshes out the fact that she's just at the end of the day, incredibly human.
3: Right, yeah. I think so too, and I think that a lot of people don't give her enough credit for that.
2: They really don't. I mean, there was an interaction, because they just did this Madonna challenge on Drag Race, and I saw this one tweet from a young gay person saying, who even
3: listens to Madonna? It's been mind-boggling.
2: Yeah, but the idea that someone would be, a a gay person would be comfortable tweeting that, like that they thought that this was a safe space in which they could... Have that opinion is is troubling.
3: No. No
2: safe. We gotta get rid of gay people.
3: Um yeah, right. yeah, some of, them, some of them probably. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, so talk to me about uh first coming to LA. How did you end up there and what was that move like for you?
3: Um it was a pretty easy move. You know, um everything always kind of ends up coming back to my sister. My sister had moved there from Florida a few years before I got there and she was finishing law school. And, you know, her daughter was getting older. She needed help. I had just finished a relationship in Florida. And she was like, you know what? Like, why don't you come here? Stop doing drag. Like, I there was a time where I was like, drag is not doing anything for me anymore. It's obviously not going to be, you know, a sustainable lifestyle and career if I just do drag all the time. And I was very young still, which was great. So she was like, just come out here and, like, be a stylist. So I moved out to L.A., to help her with her daughter while she was finishing law school and to try to be a stylist. And I did that for a couple of months until the drag itch came back around, <laughs> which didn't last long because once I started, you know, going out in LA and working in LA, it was kind of this really fast paced roller coaster that happens where I did I did one show and I got a ton of gigs from that. And then that's where all the music videos happened. And that's where all the TV shows happened. And then it was just like this kind of snowball effect.
2: Talk to me about the perception of drag queens within the community before Drag Race, because I feel like now drag queens are highly exalted within the community as they should be. Mm -hmm. But I know there was a time, even 10 years ago and beyond, when drag queens were not looked at in the same light that they are today. Did you Mm. have that experience?
3: For sure. Yeah. Well, it also just depends on really where you were. Like in the South, drag is a huge thing, which is surprising because it's still such a like, you know, uh, narrow-minded sensibility when it comes to the rest of the South. But in the queer community, drag was a huge thing. And I think growing up in the South and, and starting my drag career in the South, that really taught me a lot of the ropes of the business and the industry and how, you know, to be a kind and respectful performer and entertainer. And it made me a lot more well-rounded in that sense. And so I think that having that kind of sensibility moving into Los Angeles, where it was very much a, a different kind of scene, it was all about the club ambiance, girls, really. It's like there, um, there were a lot of shows going on, but everything was more about the personalities and not so much the entertaining, you know, entertainment value of it. So I think that that's, that attributes to a lot of my success being there. But I also feel like I, I, in my mind, I was always revered everywhere. (laughs) But there was this, there's a total, and even still now you see it, like, you know, people are still very much like, I'll never date a drag queen. I'll never date a drag queen. But here we are, you know, probably the most popular people in the gay community right now, (laughs) which is, you know, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But that it's was so fresh- true, though. It's yeah, so true. Yeah.
2: It's funny because nowadays we talk about, you know, there's this expression, the trade of the season, and this mm-hmm. idea that, oh, there are so many hot guys that do drag or hot women that do drag. And I think that that concept and the, 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 nor- the normalcy of that If you go back even 10 years ago, it's like drag queens were not seen as the hot guys out there.
3: Right. Mm -hmm. And now you have like all the hot, like all these circuit daddies and everything that are trying to, girl, there's this one one guy that I see. uh, Bianca sends him to me like every day. I don't know their name, but he's like this little circuit queen and really buff and muscular. And he does drag out of his living room. (laughs) But it's just funny because everyone wants to do drag now, which is hilarious to me.
2: It's It's incredible, too, because you see these people that will just put on a wig, paint the lips, record a video in their bedroom, and suddenly they're auditioning for a Drag Race. I do think that this show has created an ecosystem where everyone thinks they can do it. And 100%. while that is true, um, there's a difference between that and what someone like you does.
3: I agree, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's great that it has, you know, opened up this realm of people wanting to express themselves in different ways. And... Um, and have fun, because drag is so much fun. And so that's part of the enticing thing to me when I was a younger kid, is that it was it was a way for me to express my creativity and my my passion for theatrical arts. But it was also just a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And you get to become, you know, I don't think that I'd become a different person. I think it's just an extension of who I am. But I see so many people who, like, you know, go out there for Halloween and try out a hurry. Doing it now, especially in their quarantine boredom. And they're like, well, you know, let me try to do, <laughs> let me order a bunch of shit off Amazon and try to do drag on and- and have a one woman show every night on my Facebook live. You see,, I think it's great, <laughs> but I think it's great. And I also feel like, ok, well, don't forget to, like, you know, stay in your lane and pay your dues if you really want to be. A queen. yeah
2: it's an amazing thing, but sometimes the ecosystem can be such that it inflates um the ego or the success of someone newly in the business Mm -hmm. when there are people that have been paving the way for their existence that don't always get their flowers. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's good and bad that comes with it. Um, For sure. Going back to your early days, was there a particular song for you that when you put it on, when it came on and you stepped up on that stage, the fantasy just went into full throttle?
3: I was such a, a weird like club kid when I first started doing drag that it was all, I was all about peaches. Like, Any of the electro clash, I mean, granted it was early two thousands, so it was very of that era. Like Electro Clash, Miss Kitten, Peaches, Avenue D, like all the anything that like talked about my pussy and was nasty, I was all about. (laughs) (laughs) But there was this one song that I would perform the shit out of and it was a Peaches song called Stick It to the Pimp and I remember doing doing that to death. But it being like my jam, every
2: time I
0: would go on stage, I would do that one.
2: I've always wanted to ask you, you had a brief stint in an adult film at one point. (laughs) If you're comfortable talking about it. I'm fine. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Um, it became sort of a trope within Drag was Race. definitely which not was-
3: the only one I've done, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> a, so, a bitch needed money for wigs. So she did what she had to do.
2: And it kind of became a trope within Drag Race of unearthing the idea that so many of the past, not the idea, unearthing the fact that so many past queens have experimented in adult films to various levels of um, success. So how did that come about?
3: Um, Well, I, I was living with a porn producer in Orlando when I was young. Like we, we, I would always like crash at his place, and I ended up moving in there. And it just kind of happened. Like I think they had somebody flake on them or something, and they're like, "Hey, what do you do? You would you do it?" And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, might, might as well." I was, a, I was a really slutty twink at, in those days, and I was like, "I might as well make some money and get some new wigs." Um, <laughs> Which is exactly what I did
2: <laughs> was it bizarre for you when the videos resurfaced during drag race?
3: um not really because I kind of assumed that it would happen some stuff like that came up during um one of the other girls I think that was on a season before me or so um, I can't remember who it was or not, but I just I figured it was something that was gonna come up um yep. and I even told them you know during my audition process I was like, you know I have a past in the adult film industry and I had several videos and blah, 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 blah. And they were like, ah, oh, it shouldn't be a problem. And so I was I was surprised that only one video is really the one that was circulating. And it was, the video was like my, probably my least favorite experience in, in that <laughs> you're like, realm, If too. it had
2: to be one, you're like, why couldn't it be right. this one? <laughs> why
3: couldn't it have been another one? But that one... Uh, that's the one that made its rounds. And I'm surprised the other ones have it.
2: I have to say, though, first of all, I appreciate you answering the question. I have three favorite queens on Drag Race, period. I mean, like, with respect to all the girls, many of whom I love. And I really do count you as one of those three. And I think that you answering that question and just your openness towards who you are and, and so unabashedly is there's so many things I love about you, but that's one of those things. And so I just appreciate you not only answering it, but just being like, yeah, it's a part of my life.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm a total open book. I wasn't really embarrassed by it because I knew it was going to come out when it happened. and whatever. We're, we're gays. We're sexual people.
2: Hello. You know, there's this quote from Gypsy that I love where Mama Rose says, um, nobody laughs at me because I laugh at me first. And right. I feel like once you sort of harness that power, which I know you clearly have and always have, once you sort of understand that about life, it becomes a lot harder for people to belittle you or attack you or make Mm -hmm. you feel less than. So before Drag Race, you, Willem Belli, and Vicky Box formed a group called DWV. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you recount how you all first met and began working together?
3: Well, um, we all met at different times. Like, Vicky kind of came into my life a little bit after Willem did, but when I first moved to L.A., Willem, Willem was the door girl at here lounge. And I would, I would do Jackie beat show at here lounge. So I would see him all the time. And then we ended up doing a couple of different like TV shows together randomly, like as extras. And we were always like the go-to kind of drag girls that were get, getting cast and like as background talent everywhere. He was obviously pursuing um, more acting than I was.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: I was just trying to do whatever gigs I could get. And then we became we became friendly. And then um, I met Vicky while we were doing auditions for the show at Hamburger Mary's that I was hosting. We were, it was Calpurnia Adams and I. Um, oh we each God. had our own show. I know Legend Amazing. Um, but we each had our own shows there. And so we were, we did like this kind of open casting call for new girls and new talent and like whatever new, any kind of new acts that were around LA. Cause we were bored with everyone who we were working with and Vicky came and auditioned and immediately I was, I fell in love and I was like, I like took my shoe off and threw it at her. I was like, that one's mine. You can't have her <laughs> like, like took ownership <laughs> of her immediately. And we became really, really fast friends um, and then all of us ended up being in this group called Transcontinental uh, with Ray Latrae and Kelly Mantle and a few other queens around town. And um, it was essentially like a live band and we just did a bunch of covers and we opened for Steel Panther at the House of Blues once a month, it was a lot of fun. And so from there, it just kind of, with us just you know being silly and, and always coming up with parodies on the fly, it just kind of happened. It was just very organic. So your first
2: hit, I believe, was Chow Down, and at the time, there was much less of an ecosystem for drag queens making music videos, which made you all the more attention-grabbing, not to mention the fact that it's just a brilliant parody. What was that period like for you in the beginning of watching something that used to be contained to the club or maybe the LA drag scene sort of blow up?
3: It was wild because we weren't really sure what was going to happen. We were just it was something that we would constantly sing the Chowdown song. We would constantly just like hum around with it and then decided to make it something. Willem had just finished filming "Drag Race, so we thought it was going to be a great you know opportunity for him to, to release some content, and I don't think any of us really expected it to blow up the way that it did, but obviously we were thankful that it did. <laughs> okay, I should not eat steak for late. I'm gonna eat it anyway. They think his promises true, but what if you are a thief? They need to coach a meal too to bring their life to I meal. Blood on tides here is awful now this cheers and my heart slumber before. My only bleeding
2: hope is for the fact. That Did you intend it to be the social statement that many people perceived it to be?
3: It was definitely really tongue and chic for us, but we obviously knew that we were speaking on something that that was going to resonate with people, especially in the climate at that time. Chick-fil-A was it was just opening in LA to us we were just wanting to make a funny song and release it and we also just really loved the food (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that, that was initially the whole thing but it in the whole process we realized just kind of how how shitty of a company it was and and all the the wrong things that they were doing to our community so it became much more of a political statement than we intended on and it kind of you know woke us up to it as well.
2: Yeah, and I think so many people as well. So DWV eventually disbanded. I know you've talked about it a bit before, but I've never really gotten a clear sense of what happened. Where did things go awry and and did they even go awry?
3: They went awry. (laughs) 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 They went awry. I think um, honestly when you're, we were all very, very close. So when you're that, it's like family like shit happens in families where you just need to step away and take a break. And I think that that's definitely where it was. Um, Cause it was so much fun when it was fun. And it, when it got bad, it was really bad. And I think it was, we were, we were on the road constantly together. And then when we weren't on the road, I was doing solo stuff. Willem was doing solo stuff. It was like, you know, we just didn't really have a break and it was constantly coming up with new stuff. And um, Willem was very much like a workhorse. And I felt a lot of the time that I wasn't getting to fully take advantage of my experience on being on drag race, because a lot of it was being ate up with DWB stuff, which was amazing because it was so successful and we were doing so many great things, but there was a part of me that for sure felt almost like cheated out of my, my drag race experience. Cause for most of the, that first year I was doing so many DWB things. I can't really speak on Vicky's part, but I know on her part too, she just felt like she wasn't a part of it because it was, it was very much the Willem show and he made it, You know, feel that way. It just became messy. And there wasn't a lot of transparency when it came to the business dealings of it. And that was never a good thing. And I wish that things would have changed, you know, ended a little differently just because we were so close. um, And it really dismantled the family. But we're in such a better place now. We've been talking so much. We were all talking earlier today, actually. And it's like, um, you know, there's the the last couple of years, especially, we've been getting more and more in touch. And I think the biggest problem that there was was, between Willem and Vicky. And I think that now they're in a, such a better place together that it's made it nice for all of us to kind of reminisce and, and be nostalgic about how much fun it was.
2: Is there any possibility that the three of you could
3: reunite? We've talked about it, but I think it's all about timing and, and um, and the right offer to be honest, like we we, we definitely don't want to do it like we have done it in the past where it's, you know, working around. I mean, we're already working our asses off. Well, not right now, obviously, but (laughs) but we're all quite busy uh, respectively on our own outside of quarantine. So um, I think that if we do anything, it would have to be a very limited and very special run. And we also want to, if we do anything, there has to be some kind of new content that comes out too. So it's all about, but it, it's definitely something that we've talked about together, which is like, what if? And I think that that's a great direction to be in.
2: Absolutely. And I do yeah. think even to this day, no one has done parody on the level of just the craftsmanship of what you all did, the humor, but the genuine talent. Like it just, um, it checked a lot of boxes for a lot yeah, of people. Myself. It was
3: really, really special. Um, and I even like, I, we, I just got into kind of like a DWV hole the other day because it was our, It was the anniversary of Chowdown, the video, actually, at the beginning of March, which led me into like this whole DWV hole. And I was like, oh, there were so many things that we did that I forgot that we even did. We were pretty amazing. It was a really cool experience. Before we get into Drag
2: Race, let's take a break. If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Evan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. And we're back with Detox. Hi! You talked a little bit about Drag Race. L- let's go into that. So Willem had been on season four of the show. So you'd seen a good friend of yours have the Drag Race experience to an extent that they were right. on the show. And I'm sure you knew, I, like, I know you knew some of the other queens. That I, had been... I knew
3: basically everyone, honestly, because of being in LA. And, uh, and also from being, you know, being in the drag community for so long. So right. it, was, it was nice to by the time that I was actually on the show, to kind of have so much insight of what to expect and how to prepare myself and and all that jazz.
2: I think one of the interesting things about your time on the show is season five hits so specifically because there had been four seasons, the template was established for what the show was, and yet it hadn't become the global phenomenon of like, you know, seasons nine and ten and, and where it's at now. mm mm-hmm. So it kind of was like this happy middle ground when the show was aware of its place in the culture and yet still a little bit more punk,
3: if you will. Oh, for Um, sure. Yeah.
2: So what was your sort of understanding of what the experience was going to be like?
3: Well, I mean, I wasn't expecting it to be as contrived, I think, as it was. Um, and maybe that's just because of me being optimistic and me being like, very open and free about who I am. I just was kind of expecting it to be much more of a natural and organic situation than it was, even though I had been told that was not the case. I just think that I, in my head, I had a different kind of notion of of where my place was with World of Wonder at the time and all that business. So I just kind of assumed <laughs> that I was going to go in and um, and be very true to myself and um, and come across great. Like when I left the show, I thought I was going to be with congeniality, obviously watching it back. That was not the case. So <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was um, interesting coming out of that.
1: Well, when you say like that, the thing was contrived, Do you have like a story or anything like an example that you can illustrate that a little bit.
3: Well, I mean, they always say, don't blame the editing, but the editing is a huge, huge way that they tell the story that they want to tell. So mm-hmm. like going into it, there would be so many times I'd be watching it live and and knowing, like, you know, I have a very biting sense of humor and a very dry, sarcastic wit, and a lot of that was turned around to to make me look like I was saying something bitchy when in reality everyone was laughing with me. But because of the way that they edit it in certain places or at different times even, like, you know, taking sound clips that were from a different moment mm-hmm. and in a different regard to something else and turning it into something that it wasn't. I think that that was, you know, I was very disappointed in that, especially for having the relationship I had with World of Wonder for so long. I was like, I felt, in a sense, taken advantage of because, you know, yeah, you can say, don't blame the editing and that it came out of my mouth, but it came out of my mouth in a different context.
2: It's almost as though there is more grounds to actually blame the edit than people give deference for.
3: For sure. And I mean, sometimes people do act certain ways. and But I know a lot of the times that, that things that made me look like a, such a bitch were not delivered in that way. So that's why, like, when, you know, that's why I say when I, when I left, I was assuming that I was in the Bieber's congeniality because I was kind of the, you know, I was like the older doll in the game and I was supportive of all my sisters and really helpful. And if anyone needed anything, I would be there for them. And I was funny and like lighthearted, but all of that was kind of turned into, I, you know, I'm a severe stuck up egocentric (laughs) bitch, which I am, all of those things, but... (laughs) It, like, pressurized them. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Was it weird for you to see moments like, um, you know, you have some many iconic moments from that season, but, for instance, one of them happened in Untucked, with what has become canonical at this point. I have had it officially. Oh,
3: yeah. (laughs) I've had it with you. Go the f*** home! (laughs) I've had it officially.
2: What's it been like for you to watch a moment like that grow into becoming so significant within the canon of not just drag race, but meme culture at large?
3: Yeah, it's wild. Well, because I mean, at the time that was very genuine. Like I was I had had it officially. I feel like that came across very, very genuinely and how it how it actually went down you know and it's obvious also not like a really a, a part of who i am like i don't really let myself get bothered that much but i think that also goes to show you that you're really once you're in that pressure cooker situation of a competition and um and everything becomes a little more real you do kind of change like it just brought out things in me that i really wasn't aware of which was like my hot headed anger <laughs>
2: So you lose the competition the first time and then all stars happens mm-hmm. where you lose to... it again. <laughs> well, but you did, but you didn't like you came in there with a real sense of this competition being yours. Mm-hmm. And for anyone that knows drag race, Canon all stars two is regarded by many as the best season of all stars. And to many people, the best season of drag race writ large, what do you think it is about the alchemy of all stars two that makes it such a memorable season.
3: I mean, we had just a really amazing cast, you know, to me. And I mean, I'm sure I'll get a lot of shit for this, but to me it was the last cast of actual all-stars where it was like everybody who was there were there to win. And it was, they were all huge personalities and huge people who have come out of the franchise. Um, And I also think that, you know, having half of the cast be from season five is also very telling of how amazing season five was. It was just one of the best cast seasons of reality TV, I think, in a, in a long time. Half of this cast had been touring for a long time, so we had kind of this, this sensibility of of who we were, and we've all changed so much, and we all had a lot of money to back up <laughs> our, our packages for the show. Um, and I think that was very evident. It hit different, as the kids say.
2: <laughs> totally. I think another component to it was there was more distance between when many of you had last appeared on the yeah. show, particularly people like Tatiana, who had it, who had grown so much. I feel like nowadays, with All Stars as it is, literally some girls will come from filming their season mm-hmm. and go right into All Stars, and it doesn't give us as an audience time to miss you right. and or you time to grow, not just as a drag performer, but as a human but being. But a human,
3: yeah. And I think that's also something that they're missing with doing a drag uh, an All Stars every year. The pool of cast members is getting smaller and smaller. I think it kind of lost its charm if they're now that they're doing it so frequently because you just don't get a chance to breathe.
2: No, and the girls that I miss the most, like one of my favorites of all time is Dita Ritz. And it's like, yeah. that's the kind of queen that I would want to see back on my television. The kind of queen who's not all up on social media and always sort of running her mouth. And this is no shade to anyone that runs their mouth. I I, I run my mouth for a living, but mm-hmm. I really do love when someone sort of comes out of the blue and is like, comes back and is sickening and is like, oh, wait a minute. She wasn't top of mind for me. And that's my mistake.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's totally what I mean by there's not many like season two was the last time that there were actually all-stars because yep. now it's, it's really a lot of the cast members are, people who are the meme girls are the ones that don't necessarily, I don't want to, I don't know how to say it without sounding like a bitch or t- to read anybody. Cause it's not my intention.
2: I don't but, think you sound like a bitch. I think you're um, unless I edit it that way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, well, I think it's, I don't know. Cause now they're all the girls that they're using these days are now just people who are, you know, the, the most meme worthy from untucked during their seasons and not necessarily the ones that have, the chops to back up the work.
2: Totally. I mean, that's what makes me think about Dita because yeah. I always go back to that lip sync to me, which is one of the blueprints of a great mm-hmm. lip sync. It's not meme worthy. It's just a fucking amazing it's just a drag.
3: It's the, and that's what I miss too about the show is that it's not necessarily about, even though this season has been surprisingly really great to me, even though some people think it's really boring. I think it's been really great because it has showcased a lot of talent. But I miss the drag aspect of drag race from the earlier seasons where it was about the art and about the punk rockness of drag. You know, I miss that. I miss it's just so self-produced now too. Like it's missing the sincerity and like, you know, the honesty of the actual players because everyone comes in there with their own initiative and their own production scene for themselves. Right. Yeah.
2: So let's talk about Red You Wrote You, <laughs> a probably for me the most iconic moment to ever happen on Drag Race. For sure. Oh my God. I mean, just being able to talk with you right now about it, chills. So I want to first ask, like, how did your verse come about?
3: Um, well, we had a couple of days to write it and it was actually pretty tough because I didn't want to like, um, and I actually, now that I might like, think about it, I get so much shit for it where I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying I'm the best, but I'm not the worst. I was trying to be somewhat humble, <laughs> uh, which is, I guess in hindsight, not really the best thing to do, but at the same breath, I say, you know, if Rue's number one, I'm number two. So <laughs> it was kind of, Um... And I also thought that I was going to be slow. <laughs> Clearly when I said t coming at you with a slow verse, I thought I was going to be s- s- slow. And then I realized that I indeed was like Twista. And so <laughs> it really was. I don't know if anyone will get the Twista reference, but. No, no, no. There uh, there'll I be go. Gaga fans oh. that get it. Okay.
2: <laughs> is there any chance I could get you to recite your verse? <laughs>
3: sure. Will you do it with
2: me? No, no <laughs> You don't-, don't want me
3: doing it with you. <clears throat> Detox coming at you with a slow verse. I'm gonna speed it up. I had to shut it down first. Killing bitches so hard, I need a peak curse. I ain't saying I'm the best, but I ain't the worst. You see me shining. I'm trying to take that prime time. I see you whining and crying, take that to lifetime. So epic that is poetic, I spit it on a dime. On Reddit, you look pathetic with that street right? You can't stand me? I don't blame you. If Ruth's number one, I'm number two. You disagree, well, that's on you. Eyes on the chalkboard, I'll spell it out for you. This is your part, you do it.
2: D e to the E to the <laughs> T to the O to the, hold it, X. X, <laughs>
3: Naomi can't pull in these hoes to the ground, next. <laughs>
2: okay, Thank you. You're welcome. well done. Thank you. We You're gotta welcome. talk about that yeah. one lyric though, because- I, I mean even hearing it right now it's like my pulse is racing naomi Campbelling these hoes to the crown next <laughs> the
3: lyricism
2: i mean where did that come from
3: i don't even know i was really funny actually going into it because i i wrote the whole thing and i had like i was like self-producing it in my head like this is exactly how i want the beat to drop here i want this and so when i went to go um, and record it, I was telling everybody, like Ellis Mia, who was a producer who worked on the track, he was there, and um, I was trying to like tell him the cadence and everything that I wanted, and it took them a minute to actually get where I was coming from, but once it registered with them, they were like, oh, got it, and he did a brilliant job with it, and he like understood exactly where I was going with it, and I thought it turned out great.
2: It really did. It, I it's- mean, it's, in, my,
3: in my humble opinion, I won the last episode, if it was based off a of challenge. <laughs>
2: Right? I mean, yeah. let's take a moment for that dress that you wore in the <laughs> finale. I mean, oh, uh, thank
3: you. It's one of my favorite dresses ever, actually. It's unbelievable. So
2: let's talk about RuPaul for a second. Um, you actually came up on a recent episode of Shut Up Evan when I had peppermint on the show, Aww. and we were talking about the lack of trans and non-binary cast members on the current season of the show. And I referenced a tweet of yours from a few weeks back in which you directly called out the show Mm -hmm. as one of the most prominent voices to come out of the show. It's seldom that we see queens of your caliber critiquing the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And doing it so um, pithily, if you will, you know, as a single tweet in which you called out the fact that this show is not an inclusive format for drag. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, As someone who's been doing drag for as long as you have, what's your relationship like to RuPaul as a figure within drag?
3: Well, I mean, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for RuPaul. So it's like, you know, there's in so many ways that he's changed my life and the lives of so many people and the lives of really queer people in general by having this amazing program that we all look to as an outlet of escapism and to us also celebration of our community. I think that it is a responsibility that he has in that, World of Wonder has to include more people of our community and tell more stories that are of our community. And I think that it's a disappointing thing that that's not happening, Um, especially when every year they say, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are or what you identify as, Drag Race has room for everybody. Well, if that's the case, then I don't understand why we're not seeing that, you know, and it all starts somewhere. But I mean, after 12 years, it hasn't gone anywhere you know, maybe it's not my place to talk about it because I'm not a trans person and I don't, obviously I can't speak of their experience because I haven't lived that experience, but I can speak as a a human being with a heart and a soul and a mind who a lot of my trans friends want to be a part of that franchise and are not getting the opportunity to do that. And I think that it's important for somebody who, you know, does have my platform and who has gone through the experience to show support for our, our siblings and hopefully some kind of change will happen out of it. But I, you know, honestly don't see that happening, which is heartbreaking.
2: It's interesting because, you know, you're old enough, as am I, to remember RuPaul, Supermodel of the World. Yeah. And then there was this time in the early 2000s when Ru sort of dipped out of the cultural conversation for a little Mm -hmm. bit Then Drag Race happens, and a sort of a new RuPaul emerges, which is like Guru. It's literally the name of one of his books. And I think that what a lot of people like myself take issue with is I love RuPaul the drag queen, the drag performer. I recognize the path that RuPaul paved in, in drag culture and in LGBTQ representation in the mainstream media. But I have a hard time threading the needle on the guru of Rue, mm-hmm. um, the fracker, the person mm-hmm. who um, proclaims epitaphs about life that I don't always ascribe to. Right. What's it been like from your perspective watching that part of Rue sort of take hold and sort of l- the loosening of Rue as supermodel of the world?
3: Well, it's, it's you know, a lot of times he likes to say that that. Drag is so punk, and I feel like a lot of times he's lost that punkness of him when he's trying to align himself in a certain way in order to, you know, feed the mainstream machine that drag race has become, and it's all, you know, become a lot more self-preserving. So you can't, you can't really call yourself punk when you're doing, it, when you're acting like that. You know, <laughs> it's tough because you know I, I have so much respect and admiration and love for real but I miss that, that 90s sensibility where it was like, you know, this big slap you to the the face of the rest of the world. Maybe it is because the times have changed, but I think that as somebody who's supposed to be, you know, the leader and the forefront of this movement, then he has a responsibility to do things that he doesn't.
2: (laughs) Very well said. Um, Let's talk about the internet. You are quite active on social media. I mean, uh, what am I? I feel like I'm
3: not that active. Well, you're active in my DMs. I'm active in your DMs because so you're hilarious. I'm act yes, yeah, so I'm very active when it comes to like a same sensibility of of comedic relief and escapism and and pop culture and
2: I was gonna yeah. say, like you and I just have these tremendous back and forths where it's like I-, I call them to my boyfriend, I say, I just got a detox dump, which is when you'll just go through my stories and <laughs> comment on each of them. And I love it because I love your perspective always. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a better articulation. You're more active in the DMs. But speaking of social media, you know, you talked about this idea of like the meme queens of Drag Race and sort of how the internet has played a role in drag culture. What do you love most and what do you hate most about social media as a drag performer?
3: Um, I mean, we have a very toxic fan base. And that's that's one thing that is really disheartening when it comes to all of this, because, the majority of those people are people who are probably not even part of our community, and who are not even really admirers of drag per se. They're just admirers of, of a reality te- a highly edited reality television program. So I try not to engage, and I try not to like view any of that shit. It's kind of hard whenever you have so many people in your DMs. Although lately I've been really great at the block button, so I have a lot more positivity in my in my notifications. I also don't check my notifications a lot. I, I go in there to do social media which is probably bad for my career in a sense that I'm not as active as I should be, but I like what I like. I like go, I go do, look at the fashion memes. I go I talk to you. Um, I share hot boys with my girlfriends. I, <laughs> you know, my niece is trying to get me into TikTok, and I just don't understand it, and I think that's the grandma in me where I'm like, <laughs> I don't get what's so funny. They're just, they're lip-syncing to me. They're, they're more famous than I am, and they're lip-syncing to me, and I'm tucked. What the fuck? <laughs>
2: Um I feel like there are a few people I could ask about this and get an honest answer so I'm going to go ahead uh sex with fans yeah mm-hmm. had a lot of it <laughs> <laughs> what's that experience like when you're meeting someone <laughs> no.
3: um it can go either way I was in London and there was this boy that I've always had like a little crush on and I finally got him it was after one gig I finally got him to my hotel room and the whole time he's just like taking selfies and like playing with his hair. And I'm like, you can't see what I'm doing on the internet, but the boys can. <laughs> Going to town. Can I say it? I don't want to yeah. be stupid. Yeah. I'm eating his ass. <laughs> and the whole time he's like, what's rude like? What's Finally, <laughs> So I, that I had to take his butthole out of my mouth and I said, he's black. He's black. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the time or place. Unfortunately, more often than not, that's kind of how the situation goes when it comes to the hooking up with fans. But I've also had some fun times. I don't hook up as much anymore, honestly, because I think that I, you know, I keep saying that I'm getting older, but I feel like it's I'm getting older, It's the kind of the appeal is kind of lost on me. And also, I'm so busy now that the last thing I want to do is stay up all night when I have a six o'clock flight in the morning, where before Fair. I used to be able to roll right into the flight. <laughs> Now I'm just like, no, I need to cry in the bathtub alone. (laughs) (laughs) I need to eat questionable things from the refrigerator downstairs in the microwave.
2: (laughs) So I want to end by touching down on a specific gay Twitter controversy, because I think it's illuminating of the current times we're in in a bizarre Mm -hmm. way. Um, There may be no there there, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about this. Okay, so. Do you know what I'm talking about? By the
3: way, I don't, I don't know. Okay, so I was really a, terrible with Twitter, so I don't really know.
2: So there was an OnlyFans gay, and he okay. posted a video of himself having car sex on Twitter, okay. and immediately got flamed by people who were calling out the fact that he was having sex during quarantine, which oh. is breaking the rules of quarantine. And, okay. And basically, he was incur People felt that he was encouraging his followers to do the same. That this was an appropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. So then he then issued a very lengthy multi-screenshot apology, Mm -hmm. which led to a ton of discourse on Twitter this past week about problematic white gays. So I want to read... Say no more, we're terrible. (laughs) So I want to read a tweet from a friend of mine, Philip Henry, and sort of get your response. So he tweeted yesterday and he said... Been minding my business mostly, but gays on this site have created and contributed to an entire social currency that gives clout and unchecked deference to attractive white men, and then everyone goes ham when they cross the line in their nearly pathological need for attention. I'm not asking anyone to do anything other than maybe look at your own likes or how much gassing up you do of these white men and their mentions, even the ones you think aren't quote-unquote problematic, and assess how we all created this program and now get mad when it malfunctions. Mm-hmm. I think this whole situation is really interesting in sort of watching the tribal mentality of people giving this seemingly bizarre situation, if you will, so much attention. I mean, this really, when I was on Twitter on Sunday night, this really was dominating my Twitter. And it was like both people commenting on it and then commenting on all of it. Like Mm -hmm. the notes app apology, the sort of uh, hating on white gate Twitter, which is, really popular. What are your thoughts? <laughs> very, I mean, not, even, not necessarily on this specific
3: mm-hmm.
2: incident, but sort of on a culture within the LGBTQ plus community in which conventionally attractive cis white men are given space and an exaltation by many that can be deemed really problematic.
3: Oh, for sure. And it's, you know, it's because of this alleged quote unquote attractability that they have because of them being gorgeous, muscular, you know, gorgeous in the sense of whatever term, uh, white, muscular, cis men, you know, those kind of people have always gotten a pass at things in life. So I think people, especially right now, when all we have to do is sit around on our computers or our phones and look at Twitter or Instagram or look at Facebook, that's all we have to do right now. So of course, people are going to be more reactive and responsive to those things, because what else is there to do than to get upset and bothered by that? And also, it's important to call shit out. Like, why not have that conversation? And why feel bad about that conversation?
2: I feel like there's a parallel here to the drag race ecosystem in which a lot of cis, white, conventionally attractive drag queens are able to bolster really large followings that are more centered around their attractiveness than they are their drag.
3: That's a a conversation that a lot of people have been having for the last couple of years is um, especially the queens of color that come from drag race who barely get the amount of followers who um, like even with season twelve, there are there are still a couple of queens that aren't verified it's that are queens nuts. of color, which is nuts to me. If you're going to verify all the girls, verify all the girls. I don't understand. And it's really, I was doing a viewing party a couple of weeks ago with Shay, and Shay was saying that she still has like you know she's still well under a, a million followers, and to me that's insane because she's one of the the fiercest competitors that have come from the franchise, and she's such an amazing, talented queen. A lot of people think that that's you know racism within the fandom, and that's probably you know very well could be the case, but it's also the celebration of cis white men.
2: <laughs> we got to get rid of them. We have to get rid of them, <laughs> eradicate them. <all of> <laughs> there's um there's a line in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Um, I was wondering if Buffy
3: was going to come into this. <laughs>
2: they're talking about themes for the school dance, and the one girl goes, "What about?" The ozone, and the other girl goes, "Yeah, we gotta get rid of that." Yeah, uh, I just <laughs> love that line. Um, so last question: Who is the best drag queen working today? Oh God,
3: I have a lot of favorite drag queens working today. That's the that's the question right there. Though, I'm obsessed with Sasha Colby. Oh. I'm obsessed with Sasha Colby. Um, who who did you think I was gonna say?
2: I thought you were gonna say Jackie.
3: Oh, I mean, of course, like. Icon, legend, star, Jackie B, Lady Bunny, like all those people.
2: I always say there's nobody who makes me laugh harder in this world than Jackie B. Than
3: Jackie Beat. Nobody. Nobody. Just the quickness and the the intelligence behind her humor is so amazing. And the fact that so many of these people don't even have any idea who Jackie B is is so crazy to me. Like all these drag race... Followers, please do your research, Drag Race fans, and explore people who are outside of the realm of Drag Race because there are so, so, so many more amazing drag queens out there that don't have the light that we do as being part of that franchise that deserve it. So please do your research.
2: And I also think it's interesting that I do love that the show takes some time, sometimes to sort of give a little bit of queer history as they did, you know, with Stonewall, for instance. But Mm -hmm. I wish the show would give that same space rather than being sort of like the queer history mm-hmm. lesson that it sometimes does. I'd rather they do drag history lessons and yeah. sort of amplify people like, cause you know, they t- reference Bunny all the time, but it's like, I wish they would really get into truly how he, figure. Yeah. yeah.
3: For sure. The, one of my favorite things ever that happened on drag race was I think it was either it was during season one or season two. And it was um, towards the end of the season where they do like, you know, the retrospective of what happened on the season and they talk about all the drag pioneers that have come before. And one of them is Raja. <laughs> and then like two seasons later, Raja's on the show competing and wins. And to me, it was just so, so silly and so funny because it's like, you know, <laughs> they can't see what I'm doing at home. I'm trying to like, I'm miming like, hmm, that sounds interesting and is very funny. But they don't go into any detail or, or back talk about what, who these people are. Yeah. And I think- Maybe maybe it's time for us to have a, a some kind of drag race special.
2: I mean, I keep thinking about the fact that you have these girls that appear on one episode of season twelve, hundreds of follow, hundreds of thousands of followers. Linda Simpson, drag legend, two three thousand followers on yeah. Instagram. You know, there's this wonderful HBO documentary, Wig, mm-hmm. that sort of explores so many facets of drag, old and new. It centers around Lady Bunny and Charlene incarnate two different generations of drag, but two drag queens that sort of represent drag outside of the drag race box.
3: Right. Well, and unfortunately that is like a huge box that people only look at. Like a lot of people who are, especially our fandom is so, is so young and so cis and, and straight that the only way they know about drag is through drag race. So I think that there's a responsibility there to showcase not just what we do, but like our history and, and those who are still out there putting in the work and who have paved the way for all of us to be a part of the the program.
2: Very well said, and a good place to end on. I want to thank you so much. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I love you. I think that there are people in this world who get it, and there are the rest of people, and I feel like you are someone who gets it, and I (laughs) love you for it.
3: Thank you so much.
2: I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shutupevan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say.